Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, and as always here with Managing Editor and good mate Richard Hill. Yes, I am. I'm still here and it's fantastic and we're editing away, doing lots of great stuff. And uh, and as we're looking through all the different types of things, another great book's come up yes. and a really uh, interesting guy named Peter Frankel. We're going to be talking to him from the States. Yes, fantastic. So Dr. Peter Frankel, he's an associate professor of psychology at City College in New York. He was part of the Ackerman Institute for the Family and New York University Medical Center. And he's in private practice in New York City. He's the author of Sync Your Relationship, Save Your Marriage, Four Steps to Getting Back on Track, and The Relational Trauma of Incest, A Family-Based Approach to Treatment. And his new book is... Called Last Chance Couples Therapy, Bringing Relationships Back from the Brink. (laughs) Fantastic. Now, always exciting doing couples therapy, so I'm really interested to hear what Dr. Frankel has to say. And just a quick one before we go, don't forget, if you're listening on the podcast, you can also see these podcasts Mm. on the YouTube channel uh, Mm -hmm. and come to our YouTube channels. We actually have hundreds of things on the YouTube channel now where you can go in, you can listen to whole podcasts, you can just lift the highlighted sections. We've got the special unit on the brain blasts that we do. There's lots and lots of great stuff to see there and you can support us by looking at our YouTube channel and you can support us by coming in and becoming a member of of the Science of Psychotherapy Academy. It's just like 12 bucks a month. Come on down. But now (laughs) let's go on down over to America and let's talk to Peter Frankel. Dr. Peter Frankel, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so great to meet you. Pleasure and I'm honored. Thank you. Good to meet you both. Yes, Richard here, and uh, it's just wonderful. Love, love the the book. You know, uh, we we want to see. We're going to talk about that. This this wonderful book, the last chance or last uh, chance uh, <laughs> couples yes. therapy, but last chance couples therapy. Couples therapy really important. We're doing quite a bit of work on that. But yeah. Peter, we've said a few things about you, and and you know, sort of the, the dry background. Uh, can you just give a, a couple of words about uh, how you got here, how couples therapy became a way? Maybe some of the people you've studied with, and and then this fabulous book, and then then we'll dive into it a bit more. Absolutely. Well, you know, I I did my PhD in clinical psych at Duke University, and there wasn't one course on family or couple therapy. But yeah, so and that's that's fairly common for a lot of doctoral programs. There's not uh, really course courses and training in systemic approaches in most uh, 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 clinical psychology programs. Uh, But there was one chapter, one slim chapter that. I received in a course on child developmental psychopathology and treatment that came out of the Watzlawick book on change, Watzlawick and colleagues. And I was like, what the heck is this? And I went back to my, because it didn't even have the name of the book on the chapter. It was just the Xerox of the chapter, uh, more of the, the one on more of the same. Um, and, uh, and the basic idea of circular patterns. And I thought, well, this makes a lot of sense. And I went to my professor, John Cooey, said, where's this from? And he said, oh, it's a, it's a great book called Change. And I read it, devoured it. And, you know, I was starting to see 
families and and couples, uh, mostly families at that time, as a uh, as a student at Duke in the clinic, and always feeling like you know this individual approach isn't quite doing it. Like seeing a a kid only seeing the kid and not the mother and not working with the two of them, or seeing a a young man with a diagnosis of schizophrenia and not seeing the mother. And so I got permission from my supervisors to do conjoint therapy. And I started making progress in ways that uh, I thought individual work really wasn't uh, able to do. And then when I landed at Bellevue Hospital NYU Medical Center for my pre-doctoral internship, there was a year-long training in family and couple therapy, and I felt like I had come home. I felt like this is the theory and set of practices that makes the most sense to me. And um, it was unnerving initially because I was used to doing, you know, three to four session assessments of people. And here I was in front of the one-way mirror with my supervisor behind the mirror calling in in the very first session saying, tell them to do this, say this. I was like, whoa, can you really do that? And I started getting used to a much more action-oriented approach to therapy than what I had learned, which was a mostly psychodynamic approach, and which I still value, but it's only one piece of it. And, uh, you know, as you've read in my book, I talk about an action-insight approach. Both are important. People need to understand, you know, what's led them to the to the suffering and the difficult patterns that they've gotten into. And then they also need some real specific suggestions about things they can do. And we have a lot of research, as you well know, on couples and uh, John Gottman's research and Howard Markman and so many of Kim Halford there in Australia. Mm, yeah. Uh, a very important influence on me. Uh, and um, we know a lot about what leads to couple distress. And we also know more and more about what can help them. And we have, we have that research to support uh, our suggestions. So I got much more comfortable with an action-oriented approach. And, you know, the last chance thing um, happened really because it was around 1995. I got my license in 1990, and I had a couple come to my office, um, a tall fellow um, and, uh, and, and his female partner, and um, <clears throat> they came to the precipice of my office, right, at the door, and he looks down on, on me and he says, we're the couple from hell. And I quickly said, uh, <laughs> well, uh, welcome to purgatory. <laughs> this is and, this is great. I, I love it. That's in your beautiful introduction, Peter. It's it's so lovely to, to hear you talk about um, uh, action-oriented, uh, uh, being engaged. Uh, I mean, I do a thing. Uh, I'm working on a, a, a sort of what I think is a the new sort of rise of things is what we call client responsiveness. And people are misunderstanding it as being that you, that, that it's a, a quieter version of, of person-centered, where it's actually quite the opposite, exactly like you said there, where a client comes and says, you know, we're the couple from hell. And so you respond with, uh, okay, you, you've given me the, the, the language, you've given me the, the, the intent, I'm right with you. Uh, that was such a good response. I read it in the introduction. I laughed quite out loud. Oh, yeah, you yeah, know, and they laughed, which was important yeah. too. Yeah, and Beautiful. they said, "Look, we've been to three previous couple therapists, and you are our last chance before we get divorced." Yeah. So that's where I got this no name, last chance couple therapy, and I started to get more and more referrals where 
one or both partners are seriously questioning the future of the relationship. And, you know, the survey by Brian Doss and colleagues from 2003, 2004, uh, that I cite in the book, uh, yeah, says that basically 47% of couples come to therapy with questions about the future of the relationship. Yeah. So there's a lot of couples uh, in this place. And then there was a, a study in 2012 by Owens and colleagues saying that couples that come in that state and go to couple therapy are much more likely to get divorced than couples that don't have that question. So clearly, we needed to develop uh, techniques and ways of developing the therapeutic alliance and the contract um, that would be more effective than than couple therapy as usual. And they're mm-hmm. quite different. When you've got yeah. two people coming in and you know they're having trouble, but they're not questioning the future of the relationship, uh, there's a different set of practices than when somebody's coming in and they're like literally saying, you know, my lawyer told me to come to one session or I want to see what you can do because we've been to many therapists and it just hasn't worked and I need to see something like today. And so the heat is on, but there are things we can do. And so I got very interested in in this kind of moment with couples and yeah, how, to, yeah. how to develop something that really would work for them. Peter, I'm interested in in understanding, so obviously from very early on, couples therapy was something that you were very interested in. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could tease out for us um, some of the reasons why, because it sounds like this was an underdeveloped um, sort of therapeutic uh, process, canvas, you know, and is that part of what endeared you to couples therapy as a problem to be solved? Well, you know, honestly, it it just at 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 some almost scientific level as well as just clinical ethical level to work with an individual who's talking about their troubled relationship and to have that the focus without hearing from the other partner number 1 mm-hmm. and number 2 without having the opportunity to actually help them make changes in the interactional patterns that you observe it's it just seemed patently absurd to me frankly you know, yes. And what seemed like better treatment, like if we're going to serve people who are talking about problems in their relationships, then we ought to see the relationships in action. So it just made more sense. And secondly, I frankly found it more interesting and enlivening, to tell you the truth. I mean, as we talked about before we started this interview, I'm a musician, I'm a drummer. And, you know, sitting behind the drums, I love to watch the interaction among members of the jazz group and do my part to promote certain things and pull back. You know, guitarists, for instance, are terrible. They're the worst at rushing. And we have tricks <laughs> as, a, as a drummer to hold them back a little bit. You know, so, you know, I, I got used as a drummer for years, um, you know, being in charge of an interactional process. And in some ways, when I'm doing couple or family therapy, I get the same kind of feeling of setting the stage, getting the tune going, seeing how the interaction goes and putting in my emphases and asking questions just like you do as a drummer even, you mm-hmm. know, that, that move things forward in, in a useful way. So it, it very much kind of linked to my myself as a musician to tell to tell the truth. But I feel like it's 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 clinically and ethically more responsible to work with the dyad when the re- issues are about the dyad. 
And I'm sure you've experienced this when you, you know, let, let's say you've, you've got somebody who approaches you and says, you know, I'd like to get my partner in, but they're kind of reluctant. So could we have a couple of sessions first? And I'll say, okay, well, it's not my, uh, it's not my preference, but let's, let's start that way. And you hear the narrative from one partner and it's this and it's that and negative, negative. <laughs> then you have the other partner come in and it's a very different discussion or, or description yeah. of what you're going through. And, you know, what the first partner who you met with has been describing as, as the story of their problems. So, you know, as we very well know, subjectivity is the name of the game in, in, um, in human life and in couple life. And we have to understand that people can go through similar experiences with vastly different uh, mm. understandings of them, memories for what happened. You know, I, I, I write about this in the book, too, about, uh, you know, this, this frequent situation we have with couples where they have extremely different accounts of something that happened a day or two ago. Mm. And I call this the wish we had a head cam problem. <laughs> yes, that's lovely. When I say that to couples like, you know, unfortunately, I can't make a judgment about who's right or wrong here because there was no video made, there was no head cam. Uh, but what the, the fact that the two of you have such different memories and perspectives on what happens suggests the path forward, which is we've got to figure out a process by which when things go awry, um, you can quickly kind of convene and talk about like what just happened and have a side by side rather than competitive head by head conversation about what just happened and how can we avo avoid that and how can we repair, as John Gottman talks a lot about, how can we repair and move forward? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think all of that got me very interested in uh, in the couple uh, work. It's enlivening. <laughs> it seems like better treatment when it comes yeah. to relational issues and, frankly, more ethical and clinically responsible. Right. I, I just love the, the jazz metaphor there being in a jazz outfit and you're in the midst of of it all and um we, we often talk about improvisation as a metaphor um in in therapy but I, I love this metaphor as well because you're not a conductor but you you're, you're you're very much you know part of the outfit there that's you know trying to like you said maybe pull back the the guitarist for a bit and you know lead a little bit uh, so that's fantastic when you said you know you sometimes when you you listen to um either partner and they've got, you know, completely different stories. Cool. In my experience, I, I've been there, I've heard the two different stories, but then when they're together, there's kind of a, there's a third story and they both dance around uh, a third story um, that is kind of uh, uh, some amalgamation of their two stories, but it's still, it's very different as well. Is, is that been a typical experience for you? Well, sure. Um, you know, in, in some sense, what often uh, emerges is the story of their differences. That's the right. thing, yeah. you know, and and um, and a way in which um, the couple, the partners, are locked in a you versus me stance rather than a we stance. Mm. And you know, again, quoting, uh, referencing John Goppin and his colleagues, they did a very interesting study uh, back in the nineties where they asked couples to talk about uh, their early history, how they met, things they had gone through. And in a very simple way, they found uh, that couples uh, who narrated their story 
from a we perspective did better over time than the couples who narrated from a you and me or you versus me perspective. And in some ways that's intuitively makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, so you know, you're probably familiar and you know, I work from an integrative approach. So I, I think this, there's ideas that, that are useful from, from all the major therapeutic theories and practices. So that the work of Peter Fonagy and Aya Azen uh, on uh, mentalization and theory of mind, which is a kind of, you know, system, psychodynamic systemic uh, integration, I think is very important, uh, which is that in healthy, happy couples, partners get to know each other's minds. They know they get to know each other's subjectivities, and as a result of that, they can anticipate things that they might do that would hurt or anger their partner, and they might be you know re- reluctant to do those things because they want to not rupture the relationship. Uh, and in couples that are in distress, when we see couples who come in distress, in some ways they haven't developed that we. So I talk a lot with the couples I work with about how are we going to promote and protect the we. And I explain what I mean, and I send them little passages from, from my writing about it. And they often pick that up. That that's really has a powerful, engaging uh, uh, quality to it as, a, as an intervention. Like, what can we do to promote the we, to build the we, and get out of a you versus me? And then we get to, of course, like concrete techniques coming from CBT, like the speaker-listener technique, mm-hmm. where you really slow down and hear each other's points of view and, you know, um, various sort of pleasure-building activities that I've developed that are all about promoting a sense of the couple. There's some way in which you can see couples that have been married for 20, 30 years, uh, but in some ways they never have really developed a relationship. You know, they've stayed in a stasis of kind of it's you and it's me and it's very transactional. And like, how do you give up enough of yourself to become part of something bigger than you that then has an impact on yourself. And Rollo, Rollo May, who I quote, you know, a fair amount in the book, who was, as you may know, Rollo May was a psychoanalyst who became one of the four, foremost people in existential psychotherapy. So he has a wonderful book called The, the, uh, the Courage to Create, and there's a passage in it about social courage. And what he says is essentially that it takes courage to be part of a relationship because you've got to give yourself up a little bit to it and you don't know where it's going to go and how it's going to transform you. But without that courage to take a leap into a we, you remain a me. Yeah. 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 I'm just thinking that the, the, one of my favorite books when I was uh, in school, but the, the little bit that I remember was a book called the red badge of courage. And uh, I can't remember terribly much, uh, but I think it had the best quote, uh, uh, of courage, which was that courage is a sublime lack of self-concern. Interesting, and it yeah. fits really nicely into this. The, the, yeah. uh, that that we and we have in different cultures. I mean, America has got a very strong uh, solipsistic sort of individual type of um, focus. Others, Australia does too, but some countries are quite quite the opposite. It's uh, uh, and so this idea of 
that I can be a we, and we know interpersonal neurobiology, you know, Dan Siegel and friends of ours like that, you know, just trying to encourage encourage this. But I just want to get back into the book a bit. We'll just sort of backtrack a bit if we can, Matt. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because I, 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 just, I love the structure, but you, you've got something first, Matt. I was just going to throw in, so we've spoken to Stan Tatkin a few times, and he talks about the the couple bubble or the couple castle, and that, that sounds very similar to this idea of the, the we perspective. Yeah. I think so. I haven't read that. I know I know of Stan's work and I've read some of it, uh, mm. but yeah, I don't know that specific reference. Yeah, of it. yeah. yeah, yeah but, okay. but I, I think what's the interesting point there is that, um, uh, I mean, we we happen to know Stan and that's great, and we're going – what I love, uh, and this is what I love about client responsive type of approaches, where where you're looking for the similarities, you're looking for the commonalities, you're looking for the humanism, uh, and so it's just fantastic that we can sit there and say, "Oh yeah, what you're saying, that's a bit like that person," and as you're uh, as you're telling that, "Oh, that's a bit like Rollo," uh, and he's got that aspect and. I think that's when that integrative stuff, uh, because one of the things that we argue and we talk about in our book, which is a, is a very science-based, the, the science of psychotherapy, but it's saying all these elements are just giving us a greater insight into the whole uh the whole person that we're that we're dealing with. And and I think that's what you come to when you go back to the book. I mean, I love the chapter uh uh progression. Um, and uh, if I can take you right back to uh, the first chapter, which does what everybody is saying is the most important thing now, and that's the therapeutic alliance. And then you move up to things. What was the sort of the thinking that when you were working with the chapter orders? I mean, uh, uh, we can see it, uh, alliance, assessment, um, looking for patterns, then starting to, to look at the types of levels of conflict, then into practical applications and techniques that you can do. It's it's really lovely, beautifully done. Well, thank you so much. I'm really touched by what you're saying. Um, look, I, I think it's it's that if we don't have a viable lively and safe relationship with both partners, um, the therapy is not going to go anywhere. And, you know, there's years of research now on the importance of genuineness, warmth, uh, structuring, you know, the, the, the typical sort of nonspecific factors of psychotherapy. And Davis, Sprankle, and, and LeBeau have written about that and many, many others in the couple world. I, I suggest in the book, as, as you may remember, that we add um, stimulating courage as another nonspecific factor. I think it actually would um, be interesting to do research on uh, on therapy to see whether a couple therapists who bring a kind of um, courage-stimulating approach, that whole idea of encouragement, to have people try things that are, as I call them, experiments and possibility, things that they gout, frankly, in the last chance moment, are going to be effective. How do we create enough enthusiasm for them to take what feels like a risky step into the unknown, right? Uh, to, to really move out of the Heideggerian uh, black forest, if you will, you know, the tall trees of negative beliefs about each other and about the relationship, and try something new, even as simple as a new communication style or a simple pleasure-building activity like the 60-second pleasure point, which we might talk about. But how do we get them to do this when they're so discouraged, when they're hopeless? Um, how do we do that? And here's the, the, the thing that's so tricky with last chance couples um, is uh, that you know, you've got one partner. Let's say you've got 
the last chance couple where one partner is seriously leaving and the other uh, maybe all of a sudden is now woken up uh, to the, the to the upset that the other's feeling, and now they're like, no, don't leave. How do you create a viable therapeutic relationship and contract when you've got one who wants to stay and one who is seriously thinking of going? And, you know, that's what makes developing the therapeutic alliance a little more complicated, particularly in the following circumstance, which is in cisgender heterosexual couples, as we well know, it's almost always the woman who makes the first call. You know, women across cultures are socialized to be the monitors of relationship health and take care of the relationship, which is unfair, of course. And part of what we try to do in couple therapy is change that, you know, and have men be just as concerned. So what happens when the woman is the one who wants to leave? Now, the guy who has not been paying attention to the relationship and, you know, has maybe been dismissing her concerns and her complaints for years suddenly is desperately trying to hold his female partner in the therapy and encourage her to come. So that's really that's really a challenge. And particularly, I always think of you know the fact that I'm a male therapist, uh, and I the last thing I want is for a woman who is seriously thinking of leaving after years of, of unhappiness to feel like I'm ganging up against her. Um, you know, with the husband to try to keep her in an unsatisfactory marriage. So the very first step in developing a therapeutic uh, contract or a therapeutic alliance um, with a last chance couple is is to validate both partners' perspectives on the relationship. To, to say to the partner who is thinking about leaving, look, I, I very much hear that you are seriously thinking about leaving. And I honor that. Uh, and I hear that you, the other partner, really want to keep things together. And we have to create a space in which, if it's okay with the two of you, um, where we suspend conversation about whether to stay or go long enough to engage in ex um, non-binding experiments and possibility. And I say, now what I mean by that is that we're going to try some things. And I've got lots of ideas about things that might be helpful for you. And I'd like to be able to engage the two of you in those things. However, it's very important for you, that is looking at the, let's say the woman who's thinking about leaving, to, to hear me say that even if things get better, even if things get better than they've ever been, you might still decide that you want to leave. That's what I mean by non-binding, because here's why that's so important, is that the partner who's thinking about leaving, that's taken them a long time to get the gumption up to say that, to feel that, especially if there are kids uh, and so forth. And she or he, but may feel trapped by progress. That is, if things improve, they may feel, well, they don't have a leg to stand on anymore in terms of saying, I want to leave. So we want to allow them the freedom to still leave, even if things get better. And the other partner, the one who's clinging to the relationship, wants to keep it, has to accept that as well. And so I'll turn to that partner and say, you know, I want to go into this with you understanding that even if things get better, she may still want to, to leave. 
can we work that way? Yeah, I, I love that um, the, the experiments in possibility. Uh, uh, if you look at some of our more of our stuff, uh, Matt and I talk about possibility all the time. And, and just as just as uh, sharing with you, one of the things I found uh, I, I've shifted from uh, using the word "go to the unknown," and I start talking about going to the not yet known. Uh, just like when you were five, remember you didn't know anything then, and and that that just helps a bit. Uh, but it's um, but it is interesting the 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 scariness that the future is. Now this is a thing, Matt. I mean, now yeah. now Matt, you've had you know you you've had uh, uh, um, a great marriage going. On. I've had a a split, um, you know, and so I've gone through this. You know what? What is this? I'm just interested in what Matt's thinking, <laughs> Peter. You know, what, what are you well, thinking? Uh, well, certainly from my own experience, it's going back to what Peter was saying earlier, and it's that sense of we. You know, that sense of togetherness that we are. You know, we're we're sort of one. You know, together, and everything is is um, shared. I, I, you know, I have. Uh, I agree with Peter that it, it's you know, my wife that is more sensitive to the health of the relationship and she will do a lot more to put us back on track than I do. Um, I'm more focused on, you know, work and the usual things that guys are focused on. Talking um, to me, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the, sen- the sense of we, um, I think, is is extremely important. Uh, I, I did want to sort of just, I, I love this idea of non-binding um, sensitivity um, to the couple. And when you are doing experiments um again are, are you couching these in terms of okay so this is a isolated time limited sort of experiment just to see what happens and again with that sense of non-bindingness right yeah that's exactly right and actually before we go into that i just want to say the, okay. the we concept mm. doesn't obliterate the you versus me no so it, it's because sometimes people get a little scared by that like it's you know we everything's going to be we. That's not it. It's we are similar in these ways. We are different in these ways. We have different passions. We have maybe different political views even. But that there is this overarching set of things we do and think that allow us to be in a we, and not obliterate the the you and me. That's really important. Otherwise, it feels like you know fusion like too much, and and that's not realistic either. Right, yeah. which 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 can happen with certain psychopathologies. If you're with right. a psychopath, or maybe with a borderline personality, right. you know, there can be that sort of fusion, and that, of course, is very unhealthy. But I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, no, go ahead, please. I, I was going to say, in, in our culture, because we are so well versed in individualism, that it's it is it's it's fairly easy to you know to have a sense of we and and togetherness but to also have a, a good sense of uh, our individual autonomy as well yeah that's important you know when, when we start getting into i've got a number of cases uh, in the book that that um, that actually focus on differences very important differences that partners had about how they conceive of allocating time like time together as a couple time uh, apart, you know, in individual activities, time together as a couple with other people like family or friends. Uh, and one of the, while I'm on that, I'll just briefly say one of the uh, areas or the possibilities of time that couples often uh, overlook is time physically together, uh, but absorbed in separate things. 
So I had, you know, one couple that I write about a lot in, in the in the book of where he was he was terrified to commit to the to the relationship because she was very extroverted, liked to spend a lot of time with her family. This is a South Asian couple, and she came from what she describes as a traditional South Asian uh, family where there's a lot of togetherness and spending the whole weekend together. And he said, well, I'm, I'm also South Asian, I'm Bengali, but British Bengali, he said. So he was raised um, in England, and the style in the family was quite different. It was not all this emotional closeness. Uh, and, you know, he was feeling completely overwhelmed and tapped out by her request to spend so much time with her family. And he would then say, I need time by myself to reboot, and she would feel rejected. So one of the things we came up with was he did need some time alone, but that it also worked when they would be like on the couch together, legs entwined, reading separate things. As long as he could be in his own headspace, he didn't have to leave her and leave her to feel abandoned or, you know, rejected. So, you know, that's that's an interesting little thing about time, which is often you know, I have a whole chapter on time, which is the thing that I've written about for decades, about the, all the ways in which partners get out of sync in time. One fast-paced, one slow-paced, different ideas about how to allocate time, you know, one being very future-focused, where the other is more present or past-focused. So those issues undergird a lot of the challenges that couples have about money, about sex, about, you know, the degree to which they want to socialize and so forth and so on. So yeah, but that- I asked a fair question, Matt, earlier, so Bring us back to that, if you will. Uh, no, 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 yeah. no. That, that, that's that's a that brilliant great. Yeah. segue. Yeah. Uh, no, because because I'm I'm looking at the chapter uh, chapter eight, the mismatched is is that's the Perfect sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because you the chapter before and the chapter after uh, are, are really you know it was glad mismatched kind of gave them a, a bit of a buffer between, uh, and you talk about. Um, things of, of, of violence, you know, domestic violence, I imagine there, but also uh, addiction. You put those two together, uh, and we do a lot of work here around domestic violence um, uh, as well. And then the chapter after mismatched is the 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 anhedonia, the uh, lack of passion, the lack of uh, things. These these are. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, the, the the violence and addiction chapter is much more painful and and hurtful and potentially damaging. But the uh, the you know, can you sort of play around with those two? Some of the things I, I don't know whether I'm wise to bring them in as as comparative or or related. Comparing now what? The, the, well, just the, having them as as whether you discuss them at the same time or whether you just want to discuss them separately. Well, look, you know, to tell you the truth. Um, the the initial idea was there would be one chapter on three types of value or safety violations, affairs, uh, violence or aggression of any sort, and addictions. And, you know, as I started writing this, it became clear that I had a whole chapter on affairs. And my editor said, you know, I think we ought to separate those. And I could have easily done yet another individual chapter on violence and there's so much to say about that interpersonal violence and another one on addictions and so much to say but you know we basically thought well look the, you know the, the the running theme across all these is this notion of um, value violations or safety 
violations. And so there are similar principles across affairs, uh, dealing with violence, and also um, substance overuse. Uh, the main one being that, you know, as contrasted with, let's say, high-conflict couples or, you know, low-connection couples or the couples with mismatched chronologies, in, in, in the three where there's value and safety violations, one partner has to take 100% responsibility for the egregious behavior or the, or the you know, the assaultive behavior or the, you know, um, you know the, 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 the problem behavior that goes over, if you will, and beyond circular patterns. And Virginia Goldner and her work, which is uh, absolutely wonderful from the 90s and on, uh, she was the head of the uh, Couples and Violence Project at Ackerman and wrote some stellar papers and continued on in this. And, you know, one of the things that she struggled with theoretically was, okay, we're systems thinkers, so we think that each partner plays a role in the problem and there's a circular pattern that goes on, as in high-conflict couples. But when it comes to that, violations uh, of safety like uh, violence, it's a linear power uh, thing that's going on where one is overpowering the other and it's frankly unsafe to think well the person who's been victimized by that is somehow eliciting that and is equally responsible in a circular way same thing with addictions of course when somebody gets violent there are things that they maybe they, they are typically reacting to that they see as provocative or evocative and sometimes with a substance overusing person there's dissatisfaction in the relationship, but we have to separate, clinically, we have to separate out responsibility for engaging in um, in a behavior that violates uh, expectations about monogamy or safety uh, from the from the circular patterns. Both are true. So we want to, but we first always have to have the person who did the thing, a fair overuse of alcohol or substances, violence take 100% responsibility for responding to the circular things with an egregious behavior that threatens the safety or the values of the other partner. Does that make, make sense? So, oh, no, that's fabulous. I, I, I love that, that, that this, yeah. you know, clarity of distinction between the, the you know, the, the, the interactive sort of um, uh, co, you know, one, one to the other, because this is one of the troubles with uh, when someone goes, and let's say it in many ways, off the rails, uh, because sometimes these things um, are, as you say, responses, uh, sort of emergent properties from from broader uh, broader difficulties. That when you can solve the broader difficulties or the other issues, the underlying issues, those behaviours become less necessary. Certainly, with some um, some of the, the the overuse of of substances. I mean, I've, I've got uh, you know a client, and and clearly she drinks because the relationship drives her crazy. Uh, and if we can just stop that, then the, then the drinking might yeah. resolve. Right. Like here's what I say in a situation like that. I'll say to the person who's drinking, you know, the problem is alcohol is a liquid. It spreads everywhere. <laughs> or, if they're, yeah. or if they're chewing Coke, you know, the problem with Coke is it's a powder, it's a dust, it spreads everywhere. So, I, you know, when they complain, well, why are we spending so much time focusing on my addictive behavior or my drug use or whatever else, because it's flooding the field, it's flooding the relationship. So in order for us, for me, to be able to be helpful 
with the things that you need in this relationship fully, you need to take charge of stopping that. Because as long as she or he or they are feeling unsafe, we can't do really good work. Mm. So there has to be safety first. Mm. And so I, I implore you to stop the alcohol and with the violence, they may have to be separate. That's a whole another topic, which may have time, may not have time for very specific things you have to do. But the number one thing, and same with affairs, like, you know, I do not continue working with, I don't work with a couple if the affair is ongoing. They have to stop it uh, before we can put our energies into looking at the the reasons why they might have had the affair, you know, lack of sex or intimacy in the relationship and so forth. The point you got to make is, look, there's a lot of different ways you could have responded to your unhappiness in this relationship, aside from seeking out sex and intimacy with someone else. Yeah. Can I uh, just ask about the motivation of the therapist in some of these situations where there's been particularly egregious, you know, violations of value? Um, And, you know, you could be sitting there in front of the couple and thinking, these guys really shouldn't be together. You know, um, is is there, how do you manage um, your own perspectives or reactions against such violations? Right. Well, um, first of all, as I as I say to my students, we it's it's ethically improper, frankly, it's unethical to tell a couple they shouldn't be together permanently, that they should break up. It's certainly ethical when there's violence to suggest that the uh, that the couple separate on, and to establish safety, and sometimes also with drug and alcohol abuse, they may need a physical separation for a period. But the decision about whether to stay together or not has to come from the couple. And there are ways to, you know, elicit solid thinking about that in, in, um, in the therapeutic process that allows the couple to come to their own decision about it. Um, but I, I, I feel rather strongly that even with the couple where there's violence, but the partner who's been uh, aggressed against still is interested in working on the relationship, I don't find it ethical. And I think Virginia Golder would stand with me on, on this because I've learned from her. I wouldn't find it clinically or ethically correct to tell her, no, you're wrong. You need to leave him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was complicated area and the feminine, there's a certain feminist yeah. perspective. One feminist perspective is absolutely. You shouldn't even do couple therapy. Right. With that you should empower. Well, no. And I, and I understand that perspective. I really do. Right. But there's people like Sandra Stith in, you know, uh, in Oklahoma who developed an empirically supported approach to working with interpersonal violence in Virginia's work and others uh, who've done some really good work on helping couples um, uh, uh, not get into violence again and really change it. So, you know, I, I think we have to balance. Obviously, the number one thing is safety. So if there's violence and it's not clear that it's it's really over or the person has been aggressed against is feeling unsafe or I sense that they might still be unsafe. I will say, look, I think we're going to get started on this work, but it would be best for the time being. My strong suggestion is that you live separately because it's just too volatile right now. What do you think? Yeah. So that yeah. Be, but I wouldn't come in and say that it's hopeless straight yeah, away. No. 
And, and I was I was suggesting that that's I, that's not something that I would you know verbalize, but it's what it's something that's going on in my own head. And so and and so my 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 stance um, then is you know it's it, it changes um, depending on how I assess the the violation. And so as a therapist, you know I'm yeah I wouldn't tell a couple you know what they should or shouldn't do, but I'm going to approach I'm going to be biased in my approach. Yes, it can uh, I mean, affect that. I know what you mean. I know I'm a chat, Matt. And is this really the the need for supervision? This is the value of supervision, uh, Peter. That 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 you can you can go and say, I've got this couple. I know what they're doing. I'm doing my best, but I really don't like the guy, or I really don't like the girl, or I really don't like the two of them. Those sorts of things have to affect um, people because you know I know it runs through my head. I mean, I guess we 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 need to practice our own mindfulness, let it pass. I mean, I've got a couple at the moment, and there's 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 one that I have a particular sympathy in this direction, another one uh, sympathy in the other direction, and the, you you just have to make that little bit of uh, you have to make a a, a a thoughtful effort to not let that seep out, not you know create that enactment. Uh, mm, that can be yeah. difficult. Oh, of course, of course. So when you're working with very distressed couples, I mean, I, I'll speak for myself. I I sometimes feel annoyed with one or both partners. Um, and we've been working for weeks on, you know, helping them avoid certain conflict patterns. And and I can see that there's really nothing else wrong with them, like that they actually love each other, that they are actually could be very compatible, but they continue to interact in these reactive ways. And, you know, one of the ways that I handle that is to be very straightforward and say, you know, what are the two of you doing? <laughs> like, Again, this responsive, very, straight up. I, I, I will say, you know, I, this isn't good for your mental health. I said this to a couple of few weeks ago that I'd seen for over a year. Nice people, smart, uh, but they continue to get into these escalations that are really intense. And I've taught them to speak or listener from day one and encourage all sorts of things. And we did the insight-oriented work. They keep doing it. And I finally said, what are the two of you doing? You're you're just destroying your own mental health, and you're affecting mine too. <laughs> I did. Be, be upfront. Yeah. I I said that, and of course, I felt like, well, I don't like to get that extreme, but sometimes if I do have to, I'll say something like that. Hmm. And guess what? It's been now two months. They haven't had one further fight like that. They stopped. They finally, somehow, interestingly hearing how much they were affecting me and me being genuine, speaking of nonspecific factors in therapy, me being genuine and trusting them enough in a way that I could share how overwhelmed I was feeling with them, that got to them because we have a relationship and they understand, they know that I care for them and they know I care about them and I've tried and tried and tried. And I'm basically saying, I didn't say I'm giving up on you, but I said, you're really, this is, this is affecting me too. And they stopped. And and not that they didn't just stop. It was like a fever broke. I saw yeah. them last week and and they were like, wow, we're really, we're really doing better. And we're we haven't done anything like that. And I was like, you finally got it. It's like a fever broke. They said, Yes, exactly. Like yeah. we just started yeah. thinking. They started finally absorbing all the things 
that I had been imparting to them. And they mm. finally took the ball. You know, Sal always said this. In, he would say that the therapist, which he apparently got this from Carl Whitaker. He said that he borrowed this idea, that the therapist needs to win the battle for structure and the couple needs to win the battle for initiative. By which he meant that, you know, when therapy starts, people come to us and they expect, you know, we will, here's my magic wand, we will wave this magic wand, <laughs> use our little techniques, and they will get better. And it doesn't happen that way, right? We're much more like a consultant to a small organization called The Couple with ideas and techniques and all that stuff. And and at some point, as you both know, therapy starts to plateau or even decline in its progress. And that's the moment where the couple is either going to take the ball, metaphorically, and hold it themselves or not. And so in that moment, I'll say to people, I said, look, we've tried this, we've tried this, we've done this, we've done this, and yet the two of you continue to fight like this or still be so unhappy. So I'll say things like, so, so what is it that's keeping you together now, despite all this pain? And despite, let's be honest, a kind of a lack of real progress, what's keeping you together? Mm -hmm. And that gets them, you know, the combination of me sort of summing up all the things we've done and how being honest, and I'm sorry, I have to be honest, but I think you'd agree, we haven't made that much progress. I mean, not the kind of progress you were hoping for. So what's keeping you together? And, and what do you think is keeping you from making that progress? And I sometimes will even say, you know, I, I think I'm running out of tools in my toolkit. But I, I love all those. I, yeah, I love all those things, Peter, because, because they're all constructive. They're all aspects and possibilities of glue. Even though they're sort of you know reverse psychology, I suppose I don't want it to. That's actually not quite the right term, but it seemed to be um, uh, counterintuitive. But uh, uh, what was it, uh, Stephen Pinker? I think he said uh, he said the more I learn, the less counterintuitive I become. So, uh, but just that that the intuition that that sense that improvisational moment uh, when you're skillful and uh, you're also well educated. What you do can be exactly the thing that's needed to be done. And uh, we're, we're kind of getting to a point, and I'm just sort of see, feeling myself moving into a sort of verbal segue of of, of, of getting into wrap-up, saying, and that's, that's that. And your wonderful book is a perfect example of uh, what they, they should. But it is. Uh, <laughs> there it is, everybody. Let's go a, a, brief, a brief glimpse. But the um, uh, not so good for those on radio, but uh, on on the podcast. But look at us on the video on YouTube. Uh, go to that. But I love it. The, the appendix. I mean, we we the chapters are great, and they just get to a point where you go, "That's a perfect thing." But hey, there's a bit more. And I love uh, that in the appendix, there's this lovely chapter, a section on self knowledge and uh, self awareness, which is which is, um, and, and I can see why that's sort of not really a part of the couples thing. And then you do a wonderful table of, of the therapies, all the stuff that you said, all the brilliant stuff. You put it into a, a, a sort of a, a an easy. Uh, easy to look at and easy to grasp and select things. So uh, uh, we end up with this wonderful tool for everybody that is working with with couples therapy. And we're, we're blessed to have the chance to look at these things um, and, and talk to you directly. So I, 
I guess if there's something, well, uh, you know, it is really beautiful a uh, book, Peter. But but is there something to to wrap up? Is there something we've missed, or something you'd just like to to tie this all together with? Well, the main thing is I want to get your book. Yeah, yes, please <laughs> buy ten. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really, I'm really looking forward to reading it and having another dialogue, whether on on video or audio or, or just for fun. And yeah, that'd be learn. fantastic. But I'd love to to read your work. So oh, yeah, let me see. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Fantastic. Okay, I've seen it. Yes, of course I've seen it. But I've got to get it. Thank you. We're both part of the same Norton stable, so. Oh right. Oh right. Oh gosh. Okay, so I'm really looking forward to get. I'll order it right after this. Um, <laughs> look, the 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 thing is, in in a way, it's a continuation of what we were just talking about. I have. Maybe it's because I'm a drummer. You know, maybe it comes back to that. I I do have faith that people can find their way with the right support. Mm. And, and I, you know, at one point I think I, I talk about this work is like open hearted surgery. It <laughs> gets messy. It gets bloody. You got to get in there. You can't just sit back with a neutral face. You got to really be in there. And the fact that we're in there, um, not forcing people to make a decision about staying or going but enthusiastic about the possibility of change, that's really important. And I say that in the first session. I'll talk about my speaking of biases. I'll say, look, I got into this field to help people have happier relationships. And the two of you are not sure you want to have one, right? And I'm going to suggest some things that I have pretty good belief, a strong belief based on research and clinical practice that they could be helpful and I don't want you to confuse my enthusiasm for the techniques or practices or the ideas uh, with my forcing you to stay in this relationship. So please, I invite them to tell me if they feel like I'm pushing them to stay together. And I want them to understand I am going to be enthusiastic. I'm a drummer, after all. You can't be a drummer if you don't kick butt, right? So, yeah. In fact, I'll tell you a funny vignette about this. When I was at Duke, I was playing with that with an older African American jazz crowd. I was very honored to be invited to play with, with these guys. They were great. And there was a very tall guy who looked a lot like Dexter Gordon, a tall, elegant man, fantastic sax player. And I was, you know, 24 years old and very intimidated to be playing, you know, with these folks who were so older and great. And I was playing, you know, but taking it easy. And he's taking a solo. He turned around and looked at me. He said, kick my ass. And I was like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, and I started like doing much more like, you know, Elvin Jones kind of Max Roach kind of kicking. And then he turns around and goes, yeah. (laughs) That's an important lesson for us as therapists, you know, far from being neutral and just sort of, giving ideas in a kind of um, uh, unengaged, um, neutral about the outcomes kind of way. I think we we do well to be enthusiastic about our work and keep trying. So with that couple I just talked about, they're fighting and fighting for, for over a year, and finally it turned. And so you can start to think these two really don't belong together anymore. Um, but I always think, well, is there something else I could do or do I just need to be a little more patient? 
And and they've come into the room, and I think it segues now beautifully right back in circles, right back to the very beginning when uh, that couple, the guy came to the door and said, uh, we're the couple from hell. Kick my ass. He said, kick my ass. And you said, come on in. It's purgatory in here. I'm kicking. Uh, so the, the 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 fact that they arrive at our uh, at our door is 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 at least an initial invitation uh, for something more than um, pleasantries to occur. Uh, yeah. And so everybody, please go out and get Peter's book. Uh, please uh, go and look at uh, the, the the some of the names that he talked about. Um, you know, Whitter, Whitaker, What's the Wig, Mnuchin. All these guys are out there in various places. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're all you know they're, they're all not <laughs> the functioning now, but their their history and their followers. And so, Peter, we just want to thank you so much for spending the time with us. There was so much great stuff in there. I'm going to go back and and watch it all again thank you so much it's been absolutely a pleasure let's do it again absolutely glad thank to you. meet in the jazz club in australia or something <laughs> and we're in new york absolutely it. yeah well we, we we will we will have more conversation because this time is way too short but right. thanks so much peter for being with us today my pleasure my great pleasure thank you he is such a nice guy. I'd love him to be my couples therapist, although I'm, I'm actually doing quite well, so I don't need it at the moment, <laughs> maybe, maybe 20 years ago. No, yeah. but uh, it always is interesting, these musical metaphors and these mm. band band playing metaphors, because we know it's a different part of the brain. Yeah. It gives us a broader perspective, mm. but he had such good knowledge there. We will have to talk to him again, I think, oh, to drill absolutely. down into mm. those those more difficult aspects. You know, we, 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 we didn't do – we wanted to keep it – bit lighter in this uh yeah one. yeah and so so we will have him back on and we'll have an article um a little further down in the year as well but let me just remind you so the book is last chance couples therapy it's bridging relationships back from the brink it's a norton book we'll put a link in the show notes as we always do and just so again um if you're listening to this, you can see us on YouTube. Jump onto our YouTube channel. Uh, Rich today, you have to because Richard and I today we've got matching science of psychotherapy shirts on. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, we, we, we're sort of the black and white of psychotherapy. Fantastic. And of course, you can always join the science of psychotherapy.net, which is our academy site. We'd love you to be part of the tribe and uh, come in on a learning journey with us. Thanks very much, everybody. For now, see you next time. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.